I am carrying something in this lovely bag, and we all carry something like this with us. I know it's a Thornton's bag. Don't get too excited here. Dad, I can see. Look at your face lighting up. Eh? Eh? I'm carrying something with me, and uh, we all carry one of these. What is it? It's, it's a church. It's a picture of a church. Some of you are right. It's a picture of Shankill Church in... Lurgan. Somebody there was kind enough to give it to me uh, when I left. It was a couple, Andrew and Nicola, who had the privilege of, of leading to faith in Christ. And when I was leading, Andrew drew this for me and gave it to me. It's a, a picture of a church, and I, I treasure it, and I, I, uh, I'm so thankful for it. But we all carry a picture of a church with us. Not, hopefully not necessarily a physical picture. I don't bring this to, like, round town with me or rush me here on a Saturday. But we all have a picture of a church, don't we? We all... Walk around, and if people say the word church to you, you have a picture comes into your mind. Some of it will be from your childhood, it might be positive, possibly negative, it might be exciting, probably boring. Let's be honest. I, I know from growing up, as much as I'm so thankful for my tradition and, and background, church was not the part of the week that when we did go that I looked forward to it. Uh, chanting the Venite. Remember that? Come, let us sing unto the Lord. I mean, the only people who sang it were the choir, let's be honest. And even that wasn't so good. And the nunc dimittis, I mean, you know, the nunc, you wanted to wrap the nunc dimittis. But when you say to the average person on the street, describe church, I wonder what words are going to come out. Dull, boring, irrelevant. Um, Just, you know, I don't know. Um, Outdated, judgmental will be a big one. And so what I, I, I'm going to start a, a little series looking at the first four chapters of Acts. I've been wanting to do this for a while, but I felt this was the right time because it actually fits into the period between the resurrection and Pentecost. And, uh, and, and I want us to, to start a little series called The Life-Giving Church. The Life-Giving Church, because that's what I believe a church is meant to be. It's supposed to be life Giving. It's not supposed to be dead, dull, boring, irrelevant, or judgmental. It is supposed to be life-giving. Because in the first four chapters of Acts, we see an early church that is full of life and passion and energy and dynamism. It is unstoppable in its relentless pursuit of the lost and its relentless passion for Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to be. Because Jesus said that he came to give us life in all its dullness. No? In all its fullness. And yet when you look at a lot of the church today, it seems like it is a memorial for a dead Jesus rather than a movement for a Jesus who is alive. And so Jesus is the ultimate life giver. When you overcome death on a cross, when you overcome the grave, you are the life giver. And as his people, as his church, as his bride, as his body, we are supposed to be a life-giving community, bringing life, bringing hope good name for a church, to everyone and everywhere we go. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 as we begin. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. The author of the book of Acts is Luke. 
the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. This is volume two, if you like, of Luke. And he was a doctor. He was an educated man. He was a very thorough man. And he wrote his volumes, Luke's Gospel, and this to a guy called Theophilus. Theophilus, Theos means God. Philos means lover. God lover. So we don't know if this was his real name or if this was kind of like a nickname. People are not sure if Theophilus was a Christian or if he was some sort of wealthy politician or patron who gave Luke the money to research um, all the stuff about Jesus that he had heard, that he was interested in Jesus. And he said to Luke, I want you to go and you're a doctor, so you're in the detail. You're a doctor, so your handwriting's terrible. Uh, Go and, and examine this life of Jesus. And so in the first volume, we have the life of Jesus from his birth right to his death and his resurrection. And then in the second volume, we have the continuation. And that's why he says in my former book, that's the Gospel of Luke, and now he's writing, he's continuing the story. But that little word, former book, stood out to me. And, 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 and the word that, 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 that also stood out was all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Began. This is written after Jesus' death, resurrection, and we're going to see the ascension in chapter 1. And yet he says... That's only the beginning of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Certainly, when you get to the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, that should be the end. Do you understand? And yet he's saying, I wrote in the gospel all that Jesus began. In other words, when you get to the end of the gospel, when you get to the end of the gospel of Luke, that is not the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth. It is just the beginning. The same Jesus who worked through his physical body when he was present here as a man on earth is the same Jesus who wants to work through his body, the church. The work has only just begun, as the carpenters would say, we've only just begun. I am aging myself here. Some of you are like, who's the carpenters? Do they make tables? No, they were a group. And uh, we've only just... Yeah, I know, I know. I'll not, I'll not. But Jesus' work of redemption, his saving work of, of saving us, of, of redeeming us, of, 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 of salvation, that is finished. It is finished. That was completed, but his work of drawing men and women into the kingdom of God, of transforming society, of seeing all things restored unto himself, that had only just begun in the book of Acts, and it continues today through you and I, if we claim to be his followers. Look at verse 1 with me again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And my first point of 76 points this morning, no, it's not. And I've already told him I'm leaving off my last one. A life-giving church lives out what they believe. A life-giving church lives out what they believe. It says, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You see, Jesus was a great teacher. You talk to some people on the street, they'll say Jesus was a great teacher. We love the Sermon on the Mount. Apart from the bits about adultery, they'll say, and lust. And, you know, but they like, they like the bits about being nice to each other. And he was a great teacher. People that were amazed at his teaching, we read that constantly in the Gospels. They were amazed. They were astounded because he taught as one who had authority, not like their teachers. He was an amazing preacher and teacher. 
But he was more than that. He did more than just proclaim the gospel. He demonstrated the gospel. When he touched people, blind eyes opened. When he spoke, deaf ears were opened. The dead were raised. The paralyzed got up off beds. Demons were cast out of people and they were delivered and set free. Jesus radically demonstrated what he preached about. And for the last 2,000 years... The church has been really good at proclamation. They just haven't been so good at demonstration. We've been really good at telling people what we believe and sharing our doctrine and telling people what to believe and, 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 and telling them to read the Bible and, and telling them about Jesus. We just haven't been so good at demonstrating what Jesus did. We're really good at telling people what we affirm as Christians, but we haven't been so good at doing the works of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, the deliverance of Jesus, and demonstrating the compassionate love of Jesus. You see, it's one thing. Most Christians will say God heals. If you say to the average Christian, does God heal? They'll say yes. Say, when's the last person you prayed for who was sick? I haven't done it. Why not? You see, we believe God heals. If we really believe it, do we pray for the sick? We believe God sets people free from things. When's the last person with an addiction you prayed for that you saw set free? We believe God radically loves anybody and everybody, no matter who they are. Who's the last person who was very different from you that you gave a hug to and told them that Jesus loved them? You see, we believe things, we, we assent to them mentally, and yet so often we don't live them out, we don't demonstrate them. Bible teaching and preaching is so important, you know I believe that, we are a Bible church. But if all we do is teach the Bible week in and week out, we become people with big heads and flabby bodies. We become people who know it all, but don't do anything with it. And there are a lot of Christians out there who... Discipleship is not just about what you know. Discipleship is about what you do. And we have reduced discipleship to Bible studies on a Wednesday night in somebody's house. That is part of it. But discipleship is what you do. Jesus said, follow me. He didn't say, sit on the sofa and listen to me. He said, follow me. Listen and do. Listen and do. Show and tell. You know, how we get... Obese is when we eat more than we work out. There's a lot of obese Christians who are constantly, feed me, feed me, feed me. I need more feeding. I need more word. I need more teaching. I need more. But they never work it out. They never live it out. They never demonstrate it. And therefore, they end up spiritually flabby. You like that word in the front row, don't you? Flabby. (laughs) Flabby. I'm just going to keep saying it. You know, a gym membership doesn't mean you're fit. (laughs) I was talking to Johnny, who manages and owns One Fitness in Portadown. He was telling me the percentage of people who actually use their membership. It's around 20%. He doesn't care. (laughs) Good Baptist guy he is, too. Um, He doesn't care. But he said that, he said... Probably 80% of the people who her part of her membership don't use use it or use it very irregularly. Owning cookery books doesn't mean you're a chef. 
Some of you have every book Jamie Oliver's ever written and you've never cooked a decent thing in your life. You've, got, you've read them all, but you can't cook because knowledge does not equal practice. We have got to practice what we preach. What is the thing that most people out there say about Christians are hypocrites? They don't practice what we preach. If we really believe it, if we really, you see, most of us are practical atheists. We believe in God, but practically we live as if he doesn't really exist, especially when times get tough. And yet there's something about Jesus that he, he didn't just teach, but he did what he said. And as Christians, as his body, as his people, we've got to be a people who live out what we believe. Bible knowledge is brilliant. Discipleship is brilliant. But discipleship is more than just knowing more facts. It is about living out the word of God. And my greatest desire for us in here and hope is that we would come here and get fed, that we would come here and get inspired, that we would come here and learn about Jesus and learn about how to pray for the sick and learn about the kingdom of God. But that when you leave here from today till next Sunday, you would go out into your community, into your factory, into your school, into your workplace, into your family, wherever you are, and you would demonstrate it. You would show that this is not just theory, but that it is real. That's where passion comes from, you know. Passion doesn't come from head knowledge. Passion comes from living it out. That's what I have discovered. The times when I get least passionate are the times when I am I'm least practicing my faith. I remember a time in my early 20s when I really wasn't passionate about God at all. I was struggling to read the Bible. I'd, I wasn't going to church. And I went and volunteered in Bali selling Youth for Christ in North Belfast two afternoons a week, working among the most deprived teenagers, the most drug-addicted abused teenagers and you know what within weeks my passion came back because I was putting feet to my faith I was dressing my faith in denim I was actually getting out there and doing something and that's what we need we need people who who not just believe it if you've lost your passion let me ask you where are you serving where are you giving where are you loving where are you demonstrating the world needs people to get out of the church building and bring the love and life of Christ into schools and politics and entertainment and the arts and science and business and healthcare and education and agriculture and families. James said, faith without works is dead. You know what the Greek word for dead is? Dead. It is dead. It is not alive. Okay, so if you're not living it out, your faith is dead. Now we all go through ebbs and flows, but Jesus wants us to be a people who live it out. Let's keep reading to convict and keep moving. Craig, verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And we're in the middle of that 40-day period in the church calendar right now. Number two, a life-giving church has encountered the living Jesus. Jesus had been among his followers for just over three years, and then he was crucified, and it seemed like the end of it for them. But we all know the grave couldn't hold him. We have sang that this morning. 
Death could not defeat him. God raised him from the dead. Jesus was physically resurrected. And over a period of the next 40 days, the disciples met with him. They touched him. They saw the scars. They ate with him. They interacted with him. He taught them about the kingdom of God. This was not an illusion. This was not a ghost. This was not some figment of their imagination. This was not some story they made up to comfort themselves because they had placed all their trust in Jesus and they were disappointed. I would not die for a story I made up. And most of these first followers of Jesus, if not all of them, died and were executed because of what they believed. This was not a figment of their imagination. Jesus was dead. He came back to life. And because he came back to life, Satan, sin, death and hell have been defeated. And one day they will be destroyed and we are on the winning side. That's good news. Good, you're getting a bit responsive this morning. Good, come on. Let's get all Pentecostal in the house this morning. Let's pretend we're all, we've all got dark skin, eh? No. Uh, you know, I loved, I loved, in Dublin with 25 nationalities, with Indians and Africans, and it got rowdy, and I loved that. So come on, let's, let's get rid. Imagine, I was going to say, if you're cheering for Portadown Football Club, but some of you, that would not be the right thing to say. But let's, you know, let's get in. Jesus is alive. That's more like it. Don't get carried away, Jim. Was that Jim? <laughs> no, it was Malcolm. Malcolm, you can get as carried away as you want. Um, he's alive. He is alive today. The same Jesus who was alive 2,000 years ago is alive today. And he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming back in glory. We have said that in the creed to judge the living and the dead. Being a Christian is not primarily about going to church. It's not about just ascribing to the creed or about behaving in a certain way. Being a Christian is about having an encounter with the living, risen Jesus. Jesus. It's about putting our faith in him, our trust in him, in who he was, in what he did, and in what he's doing. He, he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the King, and we put our trust and faith in what he has done. You cannot follow a dead man. Most religions are about following dead people. You cannot follow a dead man. You trip up. We follow a Jesus who is alive and Aslan, the lion, is on the move. He is alive. He has a plan and purpose and we are part of that. And when we grasp that, that he is alive, that he is already at work, wherever you go today, he's at work. Wherever you go tomorrow, he's at work. He's there before you get there. Jesus said, my father is always at work. John's gospel. My, the, my father is always at work. And where is God? He's everywhere. So if God is everywhere and he's always at work, there's no place you're going to go that he's not at work. Does that make sense? You're just trying to open your eyes and discern where he's at work. He's already at work. In your school tomorrow, if you're a teacher, he's at work. In your factory, in your office, in your school, in your university, he is at work. He got there before you. He's been up all night. The Bible says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is at work. We're just joining him in what he's already doing. You see, the problem is that, that 
If we don't grasp that Jesus is alive, we live like he's dead. And when we live like he's dead, the world thinks he's dead. When the church doesn't live like Jesus is alive, why should they believe our message? When the church is irrelevant and boring, why should they believe that Jesus isn't irrelevant and boring? I want to be part of a church and I want to lead a church where when people come in, they believe that Jesus is alive. They're convinced that Jesus is alive, not just because we sing it, but because they can see it and experience it among a community of people who are his people, who are fully alive, who are life-giving. The Bible talks here, it says, he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus gave many convincing proofs. I wonder what they were. I know he said, touch my hands. He, he served them food. He gave many convincing proofs. You know what I want? I want my life to be a convincing proof to the unconvinced. I want our church to be a convincing proof to the unconvinced that Jesus is alive. That when people come in here and they're skeptical and they're doubtful, when they encounter us, they come away and they go, you know what, I wasn't sure, but I'm getting convinced. There's something about that church. There's something about those people. There's something about that person in my office and my work that there's just something about them. That's what they say, isn't it? There's just something about them that just convinces me that there's something different about them. We want to be a convincing proof. We're not called to build a memorial to a dead Jesus, but a movement pressing forward with the message of a Jesus who is alive. Verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. A life-giving church waits in God's timing. These people, these disciples had been with Jesus for over three years. That's over a thousand days they had walked with him. They had walked with him, they had watched him, and they had been sent out by him to do the works. They had seen it all, they had done it all, and now Jesus is alive. I am sure they are itching to get out and start telling the world about the gospel, about Jesus, about the resurrection. And Jesus says, hold up, just wait, just wait, stop. You think you're ready, but you're not ready yet. Wait, wait, don't go. Just hang on. Not yet. I don't like waiting, folks. Anybody like waiting? I don't like waiting at all. I don't like waiting in traffic. If you want to see road rage, honestly, I'll be singing the best worship song and then stuff will come out of my mouth that came from not up there but down there and I'll have to repent. I don't like waiting. I don't like waiting in shops. I don't like wait. I mean, I'm one of those people who when I go to the checkout, it is constantly checking every line to see which one's the shortest, yeah? And then you do, it's baskets or trolleys, baskets or trolleys, and then you take it a step further. How many items are in the basket? How many items are in the trolley? Then you take it a step further and you see if they got their purse out already because you know there's nothing more frustrating than that person who has got all the stuff in the bags and they take 25 minutes to pay. They just have to get the right change. You know that person who is getting like the half peas out that don't even, yeah, Esther? Um, Like I don't like waiting. I do formula. I do three baskets with 20 items, two trolleys with 30 items. What's going to go first? And who's on the till? Because as much as it pains me to say it, men are slower on the checkout than women. It's the multitasking thing, I think. But, but and I, I don't like waiting, and I don't like waiting for God. 
But you know what I've discovered? God is never in as big a rush as I am. You'd think he had all the time in the world. Honestly, it's so frustrating because I want to get here and I want to do this and I want to do this. And, I and God's like, hold up sometimes. Just stop. Sometimes he's like, go and I'm waiting. But other times he's like, just hold off because I have something to do in you before I can do what I need to do through you. God is always more interested in our character than our calling. He's always more interested in who we are than what we do. And we cannot do what he has called us to do unless we become the people he wants us to become. We, who we, what we do flows out of who we are. We talked about that, about fruitfulness recently. That the vine and the branches, the fruitfulness comes from what's inside. And sometimes God will say to you, you think you're ready, but you're not ready. I know you think you're ready, but you're not ready. And, and it's frustrating. You know, when I was in, in Shankill, I showed the picture a minute ago. I did three years there as a curate to begin with. And uh, there'd been a vacancy for the 16 months before that, so I'd been leading the church. The previous rector, uh, Morris Elliott, and the other curate, Willie Orr, who's in St. Mark's Word, they both left. I was on my own. I'd led the church through the vacancy. At the end of three years, I was ready. I wanted out of there. Three years, you're only meant to do two and a half years as a curate. Bishop Harold asked me to stay on till they got a new rector. I stayed on. End of three years, I thought I was ready. End of three years, nothing came up. I mean, places came up, but nothing that I knew God was calling me to. And I got frustrated. And it was fine, because you can handle that frustration for a week or two. You can handle it for a month or two. Six months, you start to get disappointed. You start to get a little bit angry. You start to get questioning, God, have you forgotten about me? You see, the problem was that before the three years were up, I was getting calls to churches that I would have liked. But then when the three years was up, I wasn't getting any of those calls anymore. I was getting calls to places that I really didn't feel called to go and didn't want to go. But you know what happens in those circumstances? You can start to rationalize and make decisions based on your desire to move rather than on God's call to move. Think of the story of Abraham and Sarah promised a son. God didn't work as quickly as they had planned and so he sleeps with Hagar and they birth an Ishmael. That's what happens when we rush ahead of God. We can birth something and it will look like the real thing but it's not the real thing. And I grew frustrated, I was disappointed and for those two years uh, it was two of the most frustrating and difficult years I've had in ministry. And yet now, as I look back, and it's only in retrospect that, that we see this, I see God's hand all over that. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Some of you are in that place of waiting. I know you are. I know you're in that place of waiting. And you're frustrated and you're disappointed and you're saying, God, have you forgotten about me? You're waiting for a reconciliation of a relationship. You're waiting to meet somebody, that husband or wife, that you know God has for you. You're waiting for that financial breakthrough because it seems like every single time you get out of debt, another bill comes in. You're waiting for that marriage to be reconciled. You're waiting for that job. You've been unemployed or you hate the job you're in and you're applying for jobs and you're waiting. 
And you know what? The first two weeks you're full of faith. I can do all things. He is able. You know, all things work together for good. We quote all the verses. After six months, you're like, you're reading the darkest Psalms. You know, God, where are you? Why have you about your, you know, lamentations? Once you're meditating on lamentations for three months, you know you're in a dark place, you know? Or, or Job, like you're stuck in the middle of Job. And, uh, and you just go, God, where are you? And yet, you have to trust that he's working in the waiting. As that song says, you have to trust that even when you can't see him in the dark, you, you trust what he spoke to you in the light. That, that, that even when you can't see his hand, you, you, you know his heart, that, that he is at work. But that only you only see that as you look back, folks. You very rarely see that up front. And so if you're not waiting right now, I just want to encourage you to hang on there. Hang on there. God is a God who works in the waiting. And a lot of life is spent in the waiting room. A lot of life is spent between where you are and where you want to be. And that's the place. Look at the Bible. Joseph got dreams. Your people are going to bow down. It was somewhere between 13 and 17 years later. And what happened in between? He was trafficked. He was put in prison. He was falsely accused. And yet God was preparing him. Moses, called to deliver the people, spends 40 years in the backside of a desert. David, anointed king. Age about 13, doesn't become king till he's 30. He's on the run as a fugitive from Saul. Waiting is just part of the preparation. Jesus, 30 years old. He's only got 33 years on earth. Those 33 years were preparation. Why Why should you be any better than Jesus? If he waited 30 years, you might have to wait a while. And yet when God moves, when God works, when God steps in, things change. But we have to trust his timing. We have to trust his waiting. And that is difficult. I read an illustration just actually yesterday. And, and I just I thought it was quite... It just helped me to think about... Because I am one of those people who gets frustrated and when I'm waiting or when... But things don't go according to plan. Or like yesterday, I went to the barber shop in Lurgan for a nine forty-five appointment, and I walked in, and the guy said, "Can you show me your appointment?" It was for next Saturday. I, you know, like that was frustrating. I'm like, I've just, you know, like it wasn't a big deal, but I was frustrated because I'm like, I've just drove into Lurgan. I'm sitting here, and and if drive, and it just was frustrating. But I, I, and then I read, you know, I, I was frustrated about that yesterday. It was a silly little thing, and then I read this. It was talking about 9-11 and Twin Towers second America. And this is true. The head of a company survived 9-11 because his son started nursery school that day. Another fellow was alive because it was his turn to bring donuts to work. One woman was late because her alarm clock didn't go off in time. One was late because of being stuck in the motorway because of an accident. One of them missed the bus. One spilled food on her clothes and had to take time to change. One's car wouldn't start. One couldn't get a taxi. The one that struck me was the man who put on a new pair of shoes that morning. Took the various means to get to work, but before he got there, he had a blister on his foot, so he stopped in the pharmacy to get some plasters. That's why he's alive today. So it said, now when I'm stuck in traffic, when I miss an elevator, when I turn back to answer a ringing telephone, all the things that annoy me, I think to myself, this is exactly where I'm meant to be at this very moment. I thought that was powerful. Some of you need to know that God is in control. Trust his heart when you can't see 
his hand. You know what, I'm going to leave it here today. The great thing about going through these chapters is we can take as long as we want. (laughs) Some of you are looking at your watches going already. Um, You're welcome. Um, I want to pray for people who are waiting this morning. You know, I had actually something else I thought we were going to push into later in the message, but um, let's leave it here and we can get to that next week.